Well, hey guys, welcome to this edition of Let's Be Blunt with Montel. And our guest today is a Washington, D.C. businessman and a cannabis rights activist known for his role in spearheading the Initiative 71, which legalized cannabis in the District of Columbia in 2015. His activism extends to a wide range of efforts. Key among his causes have been the marijuana hemp politics and policies, GMO labeling, anti-war and social justice. He's been featured on the Washington Post and the New York Times for his work. He is also the social action director for Dr. Bronner's The Body Care Company, which he has worked for since 2001. He's a founder of the DC Marijuana Justice Program, which recently announced its plans to offer free cannabis at vaccination sites across DC in the spring of 2021. Adam Eidinger, thank you so much for being a part of the show today, sir. Uh, thanks for having me uh, on your show, and uh, it's an honor to be with a, a fellow cannabis activist. Absolutely, sir. You know, it's really interesting. I I, I didn't realize that you had uh, started the the initiative that uh, passed for full legalization in District of Columbia in uh, 1971. You know, I, I think um, I don't know if you knew this or not, but I was the first person to uh, get receive one of the licenses for grow and dispensary. In uh, D.C. back in, I think it was, what, 2010, 2011? Uh, 2012, around that time, I think, is when the the law was written in 11. And, uh, yeah, so, um, but what we did in 2014 was really legalize it for adults 21 and older, uh, the right to possess it, the the right to grow up to six plants per person, the right to keep everything you grow, the right to give it away, but without uh, cash, without being paid. Um, no renew, remuneration is the word that we used in the in the legislation, and it's it. But we did, you know, essentially stop about six thousand marijuana arrests that were happening a year in Washington D.C. Um, medical cannabis only protects those who go to the doctor, obviously, and get a get a card. And you know, I I, I would contend it's like five to ten percent of the population of cannabis users that are that are actually doing that. So I've been more focused on just like dismantling the entire drug war, you know, and ending prohibition. And and right now with the talk of in D.C. of getting a new, you know, uh, a new policy, a new a new form of legalization where we do have adult sales to anyone who comes in to D.C. would be an adult could buy cannabis. We are now having a debate about, well, where does the cannabis come from? What's the role for the cottage industry for the for the home-based people, what about casual sales? We're asking a lot of these questions as a, as a group, uh, DCMJ. It seems so crazy, though, that, you know, here's the nation's capital. And, you know, we don't hear a lot about what's going on in the nation's capital around the country. But at the same time, you know, they're, the legislators are there. And they seem to act like they just ignore the entire topic. Um, does this not frustrate the hell out of you? Oh, well, you know, this past week has been incredibly frustrating uh, just because to hear the vice president's people say to the press that effectively she has the same policy as President Biden when it comes to cannabis legalization, which is President Biden does not really support cannabis legalization. He supports decriminalization. He supports maybe schedule two or three for the substance. He does not support full descheduling. I'm not sure he would sign the MORE Act. Uh, if it if it was put on his desk, which is still a long shot because Republican support is not guaranteed. Um, and clearly, Republicans are much more obstructionist to cannabis in the nation's capital. We have the Andy Harris, the Repu- uh, congressman from Eastern Shore of Maryland, is has a rider since 2015 that prevents any more cannabis reform. So the initiative that I wrote that the voters approved uh, by 70 percent um, Willie was supposed to send the D.C. Council into gears of creating a you know tax and regulate scheme and a production scheme where people could be in the, legally in the in the marketplace, not just medical cannabis, maybe transition the medical dispensaries to legal adult use as well as medical, maybe have different tax rates. There's a lot of cool things we could have done that people wanted to do. And unfortunately, these Republican, this Republican congressman from the Eastern Shore who doesn't even represent D.C., you know, we're not a state. And, uh, you know, he changed our laws effectively. He stopped our lawmakers from writing new laws. Now, we're about to work around that. Uh, I think Congress is going to remove the Harris Amendment. Um, things are about to change, hopefully. But I am concerned, like you said, like, isn't it frustrating to have all these politicians 
in Washington that are surrounded by legal cannabis, people growing at home, actually saving a lot of money by growing at home and healing themselves uh, and, and sharing with their families, saving their families money. Um, why would politicians not want to put more money in people's pockets and actually give them safe access? I don't, you know, in some states where legalization is occurring, there is no home cultivation. And my attitude is that should be the very first thing. And also sales. I want to, I wanted to pose this to you, Montel. Like, don't you think like when someone in your family says, Hey, um, I know you bought that ounce of weed. Can I get some of it? I'll give you money for it. I just don't want to have to go to the store. And they, they hand you a 40 bucks for a small amount of your cannabis. That's currently illegal pretty much everywhere. And that's just happening between family members. And I'm like, you know, we, if we're really going to end the drug war, we have to treat it like every other product that's sold, whether, you know, whether it's alcohol or whether it's food or, you know, there's all these other things. We don't think twice about families getting together and reimbursing one another for store-bought groceries or, you know, we do it all the time, but, you know, but technically reselling some of these things might be illegal. Why, why we, why would we just start with that when we, because I'm afraid that when you get legalization, you get a corporate out-of-state players coming into every state and then setting up state operations, you start to get a model where it's like, it's a cartel. It's a cartel model. And they, they want to keep it a certain way. They don't want interstate commerce. They don't want, and DC is like, we don't have any farmland. We really need interstate commerce. And and we're being told all the cannabis has be grown indoors. You know, that's that's ridiculous. I'm talking about for the medical dispensaries. They'll never be able to supply the DC market. So there's all these questions that have to be addressed. And, um, you know, it's like to have lawmakers down the street say, oh, you can't even talk about it. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I find that I find that abominable. I mean, to be absolutely honest with you. And, and, you know, I did not hear that Harris came out and made that comment this last week. I, you know, I find it really just uh, appalling that we had, you know, two people who ran kind of hinting that they were going to make some changes in the cannabis world to see if they could solidify votes. But now that they're in office, literally backing down and running down the street, you know, holding their hands across their ears, which is really kind of just pathetic to me. And, you know, I mean, but we never knew. I mean, I, I was one of those people who spoke out against, not against, but spoke out to the truth about, you know, Joe Biden before the election. This is a guy who, you know, less than six months ago said that he still thought cannabis was a gateway drug. And we've got a vice president who, uh, was responsible for as many arrests or more arrests for people of color for cannabis in her state than any of the, uh, you know, uh, attorney generals before her. So these were not two people that were friendly to the cannabis space. And I, I just, it, it, it floors me as to why now. I mean, uh, you know, is, is it because they're waiting to see if some of the research that they're allowing to do you know, uh, better supports this as a medicinal agent. So therefore they know that they can get corporate America being the pharmaceutical industry who has always been against cannabis into it so that they could now start charging exorbitant prices for products that are literally just natural plant-based products. Yeah, I, I, I am appalled. I'm appalled at the fact that you can't even say, hey, could you go pick me something up and I'll give you a little money for it in, in D.C., the nation's capital. I'm appalled. Um, you've been doing a lot of work, a lot of advocacy, uh, starting out years ago, you did a program where you were giving away free seeds, were you not? Yeah. So after, unfortunately, initiative 71 did become law and home cultivation is the law of the land in DC and you can have up to 12 plants in your house, but everyone was like, well, where do I get seeds? You know, and, and no one, but nobody was selling seeds. So essentially, you know, wait, could you, you couldn't sell seeds either, right? Yeah, we couldn't sell them either. We were, we, you know, because there was no sale allowed. See, the reason we our ballot initiative had no sale of any substance was because uh, DC ballot initiatives don't allow you to spend money. They have to be like rights based. And if you set up some sort of like tax and regulate system, we thought, well, you have to have some money spent. Like you have to set up a program for that, and and that won't make it on the ballot. Like the board of elections won't allow that on the ballot. So we had to make it about, okay, the individual has the right to grow. The individual has the right to possess. The individual has the right to share it. Uh, the individual has the right to carry it outside up to two ounces when they're walking around with no fear of arrest. You have the right to smell like cannabis. You can have it in your car. It's not against the law to have it in your car. Um, you just can't be you know, using it while you're driving. 
So, uh, you know, there are, um, uh, there are a lot of uh, rights that were afforded, but sale wasn't addressed. And we just thought, well, the D.C. Council will do that. That's the next step. And then, boom, Congress stopped it from anything changing. So this this is created a really weird situation in D.C. where you have a lot of businesses that are right on the edge of legal. They pretty much are on the side of legal, but just right on the edge of not being legal. And some of them have been prosecuted. Some of them offer you buy a T-shirt, you buy some grow equipment and they give you free cannabis or you buy a, a bong and they give you free cannabis. And where is this cannabis coming from? Well, some of it is grown at home and the, on the premises where these businesses locate and they're actually cottage industries and they're, it's kind of neat what they're doing. And it should be legal what they're doing. But then there's other people that are just smuggling in from the West coast or from Oregon or any, you know, any state that has a surplus or it could become from Kentucky and uh, it could be, it's all illegal cannabis. And that, that's just widespread in D.C. Like, And we recently had a report that D.C. had the most expensive cannabis in America, um, both in the dispensaries and on the street. And uh, so why wouldn't you expect people from all over America to be sending their cannabis here to try to sell it here? Um, and, 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 the, and the funny thing is that shouldn't be a problem. Like that should just be that should just be taxed and regulated as well. Like. And then when you talk to the politicians, like, what are they waiting for? Like, you need the tax revenue. You could do an interstate tax. You could have a tax on domestic production. We could stop growing under so many lights. You know what? What I'm almost wondering if the power company is behind all this because they seem to be the only one that really benefits from indoor cultivation in the long run. Because you know, when the price drops, you built a two million dollar in a warehouse full of expensive lighting equipment, and you're it's basically like growing on Mars. You know, like growing underground on another planet, effectively, and um, and you, and suddenly the price goes from you know three thousand dollars a pound retail to, I just saw a, I saw an ounce of cannabis sold in a store here in California for ninety four dollars, and that's in a store, so you know there's it's really the price is plummeting. I mean, I fifty dollars an ounce wholesale if you're buying by the pound underground in California. And that's, a, I don't know why the politicians don't just look at the real market and say, let's help these people be a real cottage industry, get every single illicit grower, every single illegal dealer, give them a license, get them licensed, and we'll work with them on making their our businesses better. That would be real equity to the people directly affected by the drug war. Um, I've been saying this more and more. We need to legalize casual sales between friends and family. So they don't even, that's not even a crime. So when someone makes a deal with their cousin, which is such a common thing. You know, it's, I mean, I appreciate that there's a legitimate storefront and place to go that's tested, regulated and taxed. I'm all for that happening. I don't, I'm not saying we should do these things at the expense of the, of having the brick and mortar and delivery and all these other options that are out there for business models. We should do them all. But, uh, you know, to leave out all these cottage industry people and act like they don't have a voice. Well, there's way more of us in the cottage industry, way more of the underground people than there are people in the legitimate industry and in the so-called legitimate industry. So I'm just looking for like policymakers that really just recognize that we, you know, we just had COVID. We're in a radical state of mind as a, as a species and we're open to really radical new ideas. Let's start thinking about this as not a big deal anymore. And only the big guys need lots of testing. Only the people making millions of dollars need you know, severe res restrictions and, and uh, regulation, because frankly, they're the ones who are going to get people sick if they if they do something wrong, because they have such a huge customer base. But the micro farmer, micro grower, the person who's just supplementing their income with like $10,000 a year of sales from their backyard garden, they should be given a legal pathway to report that as income, be, pay taxes on it, uh, and actually be, be able to publicly be recognized as a home grower who legally sells it instead of just I'm in the shadows and maybe expand their business to they eventually do become a brick and mortar, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, I can imagine that some of my viewers are, are going, wait, but explain this to me again, Adam. I, I don't understand. You're saying that in Washington, DC, because the law allows for the individual to grow on their own behalf, they can grow up to 12 plants. And if a person is a fairly good little gardener, you know, there are 12 plants, you know, at full maturity should probably be able to produce for them 
you know, somewhere around eight, nine pounds, right? Don't you think? Well, that would be a very successful grow. It would be an outdoor grow, obviously, getting that kind of quantity, like a backyard. And that's right. definitely happening. Uh, I mean, I think, I th yeah, let's just say 10 pounds for a proficient grower. Yeah, just, just, just for sake of argument. So 10 pounds. So now easier. <laughs> but, but, so, so, but if I grow, I grow my 10 pounds. That 10 yeah. pounds, I can do whatever I want with it as long as I don't sell it. Correct. So right I here. can take that 10 pounds, walk down the street, knock on every door and give every door, you know, an ounce. No, well, okay. You can give an ounce at a time to other people and you can carry with you only two ounces, unfortunately. All right. So I'm carrying two. So I go two doors yeah. down, drop off two, come yeah. back and I drop off two, but I can, I can do that. But if I asked one of those people out of the, you know, what would it be, uh, 16 ounces per day. So it'd be 160 ounces. Any one of those people out of 160 ounces and give me $5 for the dirt and water that I use to grow that, I could go to jail. Yes. And they are prosecuting people in DC for this. There, there were over 500 prosecutions for sale just in the last uh, 12 months that we have reporting. So um, there, there's definitely arrests still happening. Now we used to have 6,000 arrests a year for cannabis. Now we have 500. There's been a vast improvement. I'm proud of that. But we're not done yet. And actually, that last 500 is the most interesting group because they're the people selling it and there's actually money involved. And it's like, you know what? Why don't we just give these people like they're independent contractors? They obviously have a source of cannabis. Let's just license them. So we're so get this. Uh, we did a we did a survey. We asked the public how many different types of alcohol uh, licenses do you think there are in the, in the nation's capital? And people were given lots of options. And the number, the correct answer is actually 65. Okay. There are 65 different types of licenses for alcohol. If you want to have a, a bed and breakfast and you want to serve wine at 5 p.m. on occasion to your guests, you have to get a license for that. It's only a few hundred bucks. You want to sell homebrew beer or wine or even liquor that you made. You can sell it at a farmer's market in DuPont Circle on a Sunday morning. You could be tasting homebrew alcohol to people for just $300. Now, why can't a home grower, and this is where you get the real democratic effect of cannabis, where there's a lot of home growers in DC. There's like a thousand people growing at home right now. If they all had the right to sell their excess, which they do have a little excess, it could bring in like, you know, a thousand dollars a month or $2,000 a month in supplemental income. That's the difference between someone living in poverty and being a middle-class person in this country. And they did it for themselves. Like they're making it and there's no fear. And the government just wants to work with you to get you to do it safely. And, uh, but they're not interested in limiting the number of people who do it. They're not interested in telling you, you can't do it at a farmer. You can't sell it directly to your customers. Because right now the most business models in most states are like, we're going to set up the retailers, the growers and a distributor who's in the middle. And the distributor has so much power. And why do we even have a distributor license? Like, do we really need it? But I could see a need for the home growers to have a distributor who could work as sort of like a, a funnel to the dispensaries. So in a sense, the home growers would also be able to sell to the dispensaries, increase the variety of cannabis in the dispensary market, actually have locally grown by like real residents uh, cannabis when it meets certain standards, of course, um, but available in dispensaries. This is a this is a vision for like really a free market for for poor to high income people, everybody is in the free market. But what I see in every single state is middle to high income people might be able to get into this business, but low income people seem to be locked out. It's like not working with them. It's like the woman who sets up a, a small takira, like taco joint on the street under a pop-up who's an immigrant does that first before they actually get the brick and mortar business for, for selling food. You see it all the time in DC with immigrants setting up small little enterprises literally like a push cart kind of business. That's how we have to treat low income people. Um, we have to give them a, a really, you have an opportunity to get in this. It doesn't, it doesn't have to be, you know, a half a million dollars in the bank and, you know, lots. You have, I mean, imagine signing a lease for a space. I mean, you've, pro you've probably done this already, but like signing a lease for a space and not making any money on the space for a year, waiting for your license. The licensing, the licensing literally says you have to have the space already secured. You can't, apply for license and then oh we'll go get the space so you're you're blowing money on rent you may not even get the license 
And they're only offering five more dispensary licenses under the medical program in D.C. in the next uh, few months. Only five. And this is after many years of only having, I think, a total of eight in the District of Columbia. So, um, you know, there are 10,000 points of sale for alcohol in the District of Columbia. 10,000. So what are we doing here? Like, let's if we had a thousand points of sale for cannabis... Um, it would be, it would only probably like bring more revenue into the, the, the taxpayer coffers and, and spread the freedom around, you know? So, uh, but I do, I mean, you're hearing me rant about this because this is what I'm saying pretty much every day to DC council members. We're meeting with all of them right now. Um, our community, our community organization, um, is really, uh, a loose affiliation of cannabis activists. And that's how it's been. That's why it stayed strong all these years, because we didn't get bogged down and, hierarchy hierarchy or who's in charge it's where everyone really does get to speak for themselves and um but what's been if you distill like all the free speech in our group that comes out we meet at public libraries we meet on zoom now um we people are telling us we want to have a a way for literally any person to get into the cannabis business safely and legally and then when you think about it you have to have like casual sales in there for that to happen so absolutely you know, well, let's, let's, let's slow down for just a second so we can give some people some of your background. Talk about where, where are you from? You're from D.C. originally? Uh, I've lived in D.C. most of my life. Uh, but I was born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where I graduated high school from Taylor Alderdice. Uh, and I was really interested in student government. I was student council president my senior year, and I just took real interest in Washington, D.C. I wanted to go to school there. So I went to American American University and studied public affairs. I worked for a couple members of Congress uh, back in the 90s. I had uh, an unpaid internship and then a paid uh, position and um, really got to see how Congress works uh, from the inside. Became a Green Party uh, member, really out of dissatisfaction with Bill Clinton on the drug war. Like I was shocked that we weren't getting more reform. And I worked on the 94 crime bill, unfortunately, the one that Biden helped usher through the Senate um, which was a catastrophe for people of color primarily um, and communities of color all, over, all across America were targeted with that bill. I even witnessed, unfortunately, racism in the congressman's office by constituents. I was in a, I worked for a Florida congressman, a mayor from a, from a town came up and used the N-word in the meeting with the congressman and the congressman didn't correct him. And I ended up resigning that day. I couldn't take it anymore. I didn't want to work for free for this guy anymore. I worked there for nine months. I mean, it was cool to have access to the White House. I actually got to go to the White House and it was for the crime bill. And the reason they sent me as the lowly intern who was still in college is because none of the uh, older staffers who were liberal Democrats in this office was were willing to work on the crime bill. They were all like, uh, no, this is a ridiculous bill. I don't support it, even if the congressman supports it. And they were revolting against the congressman. They sent me this, this like, you know, 19 year old to the White House. And, um, you know, all these years later, I've really been I remembered that as like I was didn't know what I was doing. I was a kid, you know, and I'm going to work to change this. This is I'm just like I'm just I'm just like all the other people who worked on that bill are now like we need to fix this. This was a disaster. Even Biden says it, it, it was it was he regrets it. It was a disaster. So, yeah, I became a Green Party member and I ran for Congress a couple times in D.C. I I set the record for, I got 13% of the vote, but you know, third parties really don't, um, don't do well. And I, I started to rethink my decision to leave the democratic party. And my parents are strong, uh, labor Democrats in Pittsburgh. And ultimately, um, I think it was in 2013 when I decided we were going to do a ballot initiative to legalize cannabis in DC that I joined, rejoined the democratic party and, and uh, I'm glad I did because I think the Democratic Party is becoming more progressive. So um, I've been actually working to unelect certain Republicans like Andy Harris and others around the, other prohibitionists around the United States. Um, I've helped with, uh, um, you know, ballot initiatives around the country. Um, back in 2010, uh, the unsuccessful first attempt in California to legalize proposition. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Prop 19. Um, I, we, I gave $30,000 from like my, my capital hemp store. Uh, my partner and I, Alan Amsterdam were, um, 
were doing very well uh, financially in the middle of the financial crisis. And, and you, had, you had started a store called Capital Hemp. Talk about that yeah, for a second. Yeah. yeah so um, Capital Hemp was kind of an activist project that uh, some hemp activists, uh, namely Dion Markroff, who I'm celebrating his life uh, this coming weekend, I recently passed. Um, Dion turned me on to this idea that it needs to be a hemp, all things hemp store in the nation's capital. This was like 2007. And by 2008, we opened the store and it had hemp walls and it had uh, hemp uh, everything. I mean, from books, clothing, paper, food, cosmetics. And then it had a small smoke shop in the back where we, you know, nothing was uh, officially for cannabis, for marijuana. It was actually for um, supposedly for tobacco or for legal herbs. So we were playing this like, you know, game. There was no, there were no uh, smoke shops in D.C. at the time. They'd all been shut down about 15 years earlier. So we kind of reopened the like cannabis presence in the nation's capital. And uh, at first it was widely received well with the community. And we had great sales and we started to set, we sold a lot of hemp clothing and did seminars in our, in our store on ed education events. But as time went on, the more the more political we got in the, in the community about certain issues of development and, you know, we started to become a target of certain developers and certain politicians. And ultimately the store was raided and, and we had two stores actually, and all of our employees were arrested. I was arrested. This was not my first arrest because I've done a lot of civil disobedience in my life, but this was an unplanned arrest. And, um, we were sitting in jail just for a day, but uh, ultimately made a plea, a plea deal to get the charges dropped against everybody and, and, ordered, and then we closed the stores. But we did have all of our property returned, which was interesting. Like all of our bongs and vaporizers and things that were considered drug paraphernalia were actually returned to us intact with like police identification numbers on them. And we were able to, we were able to stay open for four more months while we were waiting to be shut down permanently. And we sold through the stock, able to pay our lawyers, Pay, give nice severance to our employees. And it was a really sad moment, as you might expect, to have the government like take away a very successful business. It was paying, had paid almost a million dollars in sales tax to the DC government at that point. It's like, why are you shutting this down? And and ultimately, um, the, the community said, you have to change the law. You have to legalize cannabis now. You have to legalize sale of drug paraphernalia now. Just do it. There's no rider preventing you from doing it. Congress is not standing in the way. Democrats are in Congress. Just do it. And um, and we collected the signatures out of my house. Uh, it was it was not an easy job to collect uh, five percent of the registered voters' signatures. Um, and we didn't. Had, I'd never done it successfully. I'd tried for other things, and we never got it successfully. This was like we're going to get it no matter what. And we did get it on the ballot after a lot of struggle, and um, and it had to get through you know a review by the board of elections and the language and all this stuff, and it, it barely got through. I mean, we had the attorney general writing letters to the board of elections saying, do not let this on the ballot, <laughs> you know? So when it finally did get on the ballot, it, it was, we had almost no money for the campaign. Like we had very, it was low budget. Dr. Brunners had given us about a hundred thousand dollars and we had raised a hundred thousand um, dollars. But then the drug policy Alliance swooped in at the very end and really helped us professionalize the campaign. And, you know, thank goodness for the drug policy Alliance. They do great, great work. Um, and so we're kind of like the activist group in DC that like partnered with, later with the professionals. We got it passed. Uh, Dr. Malik Burnett, um, he's a great cannabis activist um, and a medical doctor, uh, African-American medical doctor who really led the campaign in, uh, in, the in the final like three months. Like I kind of stepped back once it was on the ballot. That was my job. And it was my job to support black voices. I mean, frankly, you know, it is, it is a little, I have consistent, consistently heard criticism as an activist that I'm white. I, we want to hear from black voices. And um, increasingly, I'm more and more sensitive to that as an activist. And I want, um, I, we are like, we are not just, it's not just me. Like DCMJ is a very diverse community. And, and it's, and really the business, smallest business people are mostly African-Americans in DC that are screaming for, you know, micro licenses and an easy, a low barrier for entry. The people who have been historically targeted for these laws. So, you know, low barrier of entry has got to be the philosophy. And, uh, you know, Dr. Bronner's the company I work for, has been, you know, really supportive of cannabis reform. But we don't, Dr. Bronner's doesn't sell cannabis. You know, we make, have hemp oil in the soap. It's non, it's non-THC hemp, you know, and no, it's like there's no THC in the product. 
Yeah, you know, one of the things that people I don't know understand. What years are you talking about when you started your hemp store? What, what years was? Sure, I, I probably am jumping around a little bit. I'm trying to summarize it, but uh, in 2007 we we began the store, and it was closed in 2012. In 20, late 2011, it was raided, and it took like about nine months to go through a process. And then, so, but I mean, in 2007, 2008, what people don't understand, even though it took the hemp bill to rocket hemp across the country, hemp was already legal mm-hmm. for sale. We were importing something close to 300, 400, you know, I mean, uh, $300,000, uh, dollars worth of hemp products from overseas. Um, million or four hundred million. It was a lot more than that. It was really. Yeah, it was. We were we were importing everything, like you said, like all the clothing and all the food was coming from Canada because it's, it was legal in Canada and uh, it still is. I mean, most of the hemp food products come from Canada these days. The U.S. is like I think hemp has become like a CBD cash crop. Uh, where you're not interested in THC, but you're definitely interested in the CBD and you can sell that. And um, I, when I heard about CBD in the late 2000s, that that was what hemp was going to become a cash crop. I didn't understand it. I didn't get it at all. Uh, that, that this was going to be the, the reason why people, um, you know, want to grow hemp. I thought they were going to grow hemp for building materials or for paper or for clothing. And it turns out that those are, you know, well, um, those industries are just getting their uh, you know, start. And I, I did visit last week a hemp wood uh, factory in Kentucky. And it was really impressive where they were compressing the hemp and making uh, beautiful uh, flooring material. Um, with, you know, by, It's like a natural flooring material with the hemp on the top. And, um, you know, this is it's a new product uh the hemp wood and people can look it up they're on the they're, they're well but people don't stuff. people don't want to admit the fact that you know what they they didn't realize is that this country was basically built on hemp most people don't want to recognize that but you can go back to you know uh uh the late 1600s early 1700s i mean we farmers were were by law ordered to grow hemp because you know we used hemp for everything from sails to ropes to sheets to clothing to you know, to and even even in some of our wood products. So um, it seems like it was old as new again. But, you know, the fact that, you know, I, I know what two years ago uh, is a couple of publicly traded companies right now up on the stock market who are using some of the material, the cellulose material, because they've recognized that cellulose material from the hemp uh, has a higher retention rate for electricity than even graphite. So we may end up finding that the hemp replaces graphite in batteries. Um, and, you know, you were, were way ahead of your time by, you know, growing your, you know, your store or building your store out of hemp bricks. But, you know, I mean, if we were to, you know, do a lot more building that way, especially if some of the buildings like, you know, like parking structures and, and malls and things like that, we could literally start sequestering some of the CO2 in the atmosphere because it's absorbed by the hemp brick. People don't know that, so I, I am I, I agree with you. I'm surprised that the ancillary industries haven't taken off as quickly as they should have and could have. Um, what do you think is holding that back? Okay, well, uh, infrastructure. It, it, I think there's a lot of investment that's needed to produce, for instance, hemp paper. Um, I am friends with one of the foremost hemp paper makers in the United States. And she actually worked with a mill desperately trying to get this mill to be able to uh, decorticate and process the hemp into paper. And it's, it just didn't work. Like with the existing equipment they have, the only place in the world with really specialized uh, equipment for hemp paper is in China. And, you know, there was a trade embargo with China for the last four years under Trump. And I found out something very interesting when I was visiting Kentucky that the factory that is a hemp wood factory and employs I don't know, a couple dozen people, um, they, they didn't get their equipment that they had ordered from China to press the wood in time. And they were delayed. Their whole production was delayed by these, this trade embargo. And in the end, using, I guess, connections with Mitch McConnell. And I mean, they didn't tell me this, they, they used that connection, but I'm just assuming because he's, or maybe it was Rand Paul, but in the end, 
Donald Trump signed a waiver so they could get this hemp board machine to be shipped over so they could do it on site, you know, near near all these farmers in Kentucky. But again, like there's like we need to really grease the wheels of getting the infrastructure in place to process um, hemp into all these other products, not just for food. Um, I mean, it's sad to say, you know, I've been to Canada many times to visit the hemp farms up there for hemp oil. Uh, many of them are organic, certified organic, and some are conventional. And the conventional ones are still spraying Roundup on their fields. And we know Roundup, uh, it, it causes cancer. It really does. It should be banned from the super, from the Home Depot. Uh, it, it's But it's still, it's still being used um, to clean fields of weeds in the springtime, and then they plant the hemp seed afterwards. Hemp is a phytoremediator. It'll pull... Uh, it'll pull it right out of the ground and put it into the fiber or even into the seed. And so I, I'm, I'm, you know, let's grow this in a regenerative organic way. Let's have living soils. Let's definitely grow cannabis on a large scale, but doing it with chemicals and synthetic fertilizers, pesticides, uh, herbicides. Um, this is old. This is old thinking being applied to a new crop and we shouldn't be a new, new again crop. So we shouldn't be uh, uh, just assuming that that's how you do it, you know. And if you grow it right and you and you do rotation of crops, you don't have a weed problem, you know. And you don't have to till even. You can do no till. So um, and then you can prevent erosion and runoff and retain more of the nutrients in the soil. So um, I'm I'm hoping I'm hopeful uh, that more people are get, catching on to that. That that this is part of a bigger uh, farming system and uh, but um, really if you look around the world there's they're burning bales of of hemp in canada because they don't have a market for it they either burn it or they compost it but a lot of it is just not being used um, because there's no processing equipment i think the u.s government and the canadian government since they historically oppressed people who were interested in cannabis oppressed this industry prevented it from growing they should be actually restarting the industry like restoring what should have never been dismantled like kind of imagine where would it be if we had never banned cannabis in the 30s we right maybe we shouldn't taxize when we banned it but then you know remember our government stepped up and had hemp for victory during yeah. world war ii so we That's you know we started a program again in world war ii then we shut it down again and i mean it's 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 ridiculous the way we look at hemp when we recognize how much value it can be Across the board. I mean, you were talking about the fact that it uh, leaches, you know, toxic chemicals out of the ground. Well, you know, we know now that if you were to plant, you know, fields of hemp in between, you know, rotations of crops, you could literally help pure, purify the soil a little bit in between every round of grow. Um, uh, you could plant uh, hemp alongside certain crops to pull those toxins out of the soil before they hit the food grade products. So it's it's really stupid. I, I, I can't find another word, and that's a bad word to use, but you know, I just find it ignorant that you know we won't do what we claim we will want to do, and that's follow the science. Exactly. Follow the science science and uh the you know efficacy of cannabis as medicine. The Institute of Medicine said in 1999 that it had efficacy, that it was really medicine, that it really helped people. Why are we still, why are some people still debating that? Like some politicians are still debating it. It's not even in medicine. Like they don't see it that way. But that, that same politician who debate that doesn't even know that our own government owns a patent. Yeah. Those same politicians don't even recognize that our money that was spent by NIDA and other organizations was spent in places like Israel and around the world to conduct research to discover all the things that we've now recently discovered. I mean, you know, remember, Meshulam, I think, identified the endocannabinoid system back in, you know, 1986 and 1992 and 1996. So information was coming out that we funded, yet we've taken this back burner. And, you know, I, I keep talking about it now. You were talking about China there for a second, but we now know that China is growing hemp for worldwide distribution. Colombia is growing hemp for worldwide distribution. And just like you were talking about what's going on in Canada, with Canada where they're using Roundup, well, who knows what they're using in China? Mm -hmm. That we're going to now start to import here and use as well, a yeah. food and, and like I was talking about 
about the phyto remediation aspects of pulling things out of the ground and putting it into the actual plant. If you know, when they did that at Chernobyl, after the Chernobyl disaster, the radiation was like on farmland pretty far away, but they wanted to get that farmland back. They grew hemp for 10 years and each year they were able to, able to measure with a dosimeter how the radiation levels went, got lower and lower and lower until they finally got to a point where like there's not any radiation here to be concerned about. You can grow food here again. And uh, but what they did with that hemp, they had to bury that hemp. They couldn't they couldn't make any products out of it because it was radioactive. At that they couldn't point. burn it. Yeah, they couldn't burn it. They had to literally put it underground and just bury it. Uh, I guess that's carbon sequestration a little bit there, but you're also sequestering the radioactive material. Uh, but it was the right thing to do. You know, like you don't use if you're going to use it to clean up an industrial site, you don't make anything from that hemp. You you just use it to tr literally transfer things out of the ground. You know, it's kind of like cleaning the soil for you. Um, but if you're if you're a, a farmer in, say, Iowa and you grew up there, you were born there and you're like 60 years old now, you know what I'm talking about when I say that the topsoil has has disappeared. And they used to have about two feet of like sandy loam, beautiful, rich, dark soil all across Iowa. And now it's like four inches to six inches in some places, but it's pretty thin. And that means that what we've been depleting the soils, we've been letting the soils run off, plowing it, it's blowing in the wind, we're not regenerating it. You need to leave the roots in the ground. You need to like think about every crop has to like, we have to do this pretty much with every crop now, if we're gonna have topsoil in the future. Um, and we can't just like, take topsoil from one place to another place and think that that's somehow going to solve the problem. I mean, there's a lot of soil being made on farms now. Like they're just mixing it from scratch because there's no topsoil left. But I have been to Northern California where there's a, a, a tradition of cottage cannabis industry. Um, many times I've been to Northern California actually for, to, to visit for, for work. And what I find out is that these farmers are growing where they, they never plow their fields and they don't really have fields. They have mounds and they're, you know, and they're growing these large bushes and they're growing them under the sun and they're collecting water and they're not irrigating in a large, it's not, it's, it's micro scale, but they're making a living and their families are happy and they have, they build beautiful homes up there in the, in the mountains um, next to their gardens and stuff. And uh, I, I think this is a way of, this is a way of life that should be preserved and encouraged not the factory farming model, not, you know, you're not giant warehouses, unfortunately, in the desert, you know, um, we, we should be encouraging where the plant really likes to grow, where it really thrives. And those places should be able to sell it everywhere. So uh, I'm hoping we get to that point. I am nervous about, you mentioned, we, we mentioned, I mentioned uh, Kamala Harris, and then you mentioned Harris. And it's like, I'm looking to her because I feel like she really gets it. She's introduced a number of legalization bills. She's pro- descheduling, you know? Um, so I, you know, can we, can we just get her to see the pra practicality of not letting this down? Look, uh, one thing I'm going to say, historically talk about World War II, FDR, who led us through World War II, also promised to end alcohol prohibition in 1932 when he was running for president for the first time against Herbert Hoover. And he said, um, I'm, uh, you know, I'm going to end it. We're going to do repeal in the first year. In the first year. And that meant like changing the U.S. Constitution in one year. It's not an easy thing to do, right? He did it in one year. And then when, when they got rid of repeal in just the first year and it was like everyone was on board, prohibition was over, it gave people hope that the country could solve even bigger problems, namely the Depression. And it was sort of like, wow, FDR is a great president. He got this done in the first year and it was a, a problem for the last 13 years. What can we do now? So if we can just check off cannabis legalization at the federal level, just check it off. It's done. We did it. We're past it. Think of all the problems we can then address next that, that we're not addressing, you know, because this is an easy one. This is like us. This is just a man-made problem. And like, and I want to deal with reparations still. I want to deal with historic injustices in this country. You know, we still, we have a real race, racism problem in this country from, uh, namely from uh, white supremacists. Uh, we, 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 these, the problems aren't going to be easy to address if we're still dealing with this drug war, <laughs> you know, right. everybody wants to end, <laughs> you know, right. but it just seems like, you know, unfortunately it seems like we're going to have to wait for the passing of certain people before we can take a step forward. 
I sure hope not. You know, I've seen my parents change. My parents were totally anti-marijuana. I didn't use marijuana in high school. I was straight edge, although I drank alcohol. And uh, when I got to college, I started using marijuana. I said, you know what? You were wrong. It's not that crazy. It's actually better than alcohol for your for your life. And uh, it's, a, it's a good choice. And it took like 20 years to convince my parents that I basically had to legalize it in Washington, D.C. to convince my mom and dad that it was the right thing to do. So I, I think people do have the capacity to change. They see what's going on around them. And uh, even Joe Biden. Uh, and, you know, when we talk about Joe Biden uh, being this drug warrior, you need the drug warrior to end the war. You know, uh, many years ago, I was in Israel and an Israeli soldier told me if it wasn't for the right wing making peace with the Egyptians in 1979 with the Camp David Accords, there wouldn't have been peace. Because the left, they always want to make peace. They always want to end the war. But if you, you got to convince the warriors that it's time to make peace. And um, and really, Biden's a warrior. And and, he's some, and you mentioned Kamala, too. I think she's less of a warrior. But, uh, you know, they if they make the peace, it's going to last. So let's just, like, wish them on to this. Let's, it's not a it's not done deal yet that they aren't going to do it. They still have some time. And, um, you know, I think we have to be positive and... And maybe engage more with the Democratic Party than we have ever before. And like, no, this is a Democratic Party issue. You have to do it. And it's something, though, that, that, again, they have to be willing to talk about. And unfortunately, we don't even, you know, again, remember, they, they made multiple statements during this would be something that they would address in the first 100 days. Well, you know, we're past 100 days and they haven't addressed it. So now are they going to just be silent? I don't think we're at 100 days yet. Okay, I think well, that's sometime in April. I, I think we right. have, have a little more time. I'm expecting a big announcement on Capitol Hill about cannabis in April. I think they're saving right. it for 20. Now, I will break some news here on your show, um, and I'm going to probably get in trouble for it. But I'm going to tell you this. I know that Eleanor Holmes Norton, the, the Washington, D.C. congresswoman, who I think is a hero uh, for D.C., has done so much good work. She is she has a letter she's drafted that she's trying to get cannabis in the U.S. botanical gardens, which means there'll be actual hemp plants growing in the botanical gardens. Now, it's not a it's not public yet. It hasn't been a single article written about it yet, but it's something that like as an act, one activist to another, I can tell you to get excited about. But I don't just want cannabis in those botanical gardens. You know, it, we need it. We need it to be like legal across the country. Uh, but it is kind of interesting that we're, you know, it's a medicinal plant. There's a medicinal plant garden in the U.S. Botanical Gardens. The architect of the Capitol uh, runs the place. But the place is still surrounded by fences because of what happened on January 6th. Right. And, uh, and honestly, uh, D.C. has has changed quite a bit since January 6th uh, as a life as a most of my life resident. Um, it's it's a, it's not a pleasant place to be, unfortunately. Um we we've lost something. We need to get those fences down and we need to hopefully get to a safer space where security isn't tantamount and, uh, um, and where people where freedom is. But I, I guess, you know, all your, all your viewers from around the world as a Washington DC resident, I want you to know that we were well aware that the threat was coming uh, a few weeks in advance. And we had had two rounds of protests with these proud boys and neo-Nazis and, you know, just a host of bad people, really bad people, all Trump supporters. They had been coming to town for two months prior and they had burned banners in front of churches. They had assaulted dozens of D.C. residents who were just walking down the street. that They knew were from the town and they just beat them up. It was like, what is this Nazi Germany? You know, I, I'm Jewish. My ancestors were murdered in the Holocaust. I have um, I, I, I have to say, like. I really hope people wake up that there's there's a strong uh, uh, racist white supremacist bent in the Republic in the Republican Party. It's not a fringe thing. It's in centered in the party. And um, we really need to work in the Democratic Party now. It's time for all cannabis activists, I think, to abandon the Republican Party because um, they are the obstructionists. We need their votes in the Senate. They're not giving them for cannabis reform. You know, we can but, yeah, but they're not. Don't, don't you find it? Don't you find it a little weird, though, that. Those right wing proud boys, all of these right white supremacists, when they ran into the Capitol, there was a lot of pot being smoked, a lot of cannabis being smoked in the Capitol, was it not? I'm glad I could laugh about this that we didn't lose our Capitol building in a in a fiery, you know, in, in flames. 
you know, because these what they did was really dangerous and serious. Now, I, I have been arrested 27 times. Okay. Wow. 25 of those times were acts of nonviolent, peaceful civil disobedience that I think Gandhi or King would say that it was peaceful and nonviolent. Okay. And so, so these are not like serious crimes that I was arrested for. But that said, I can never in my wildest dreams imagined assembling a group of people to storm the Capitol building, to terrorize the elected officials, to maybe kill or hang some of them. I can't even imagine that. That is a violent like concept of revolution. And what we want, you know, is a peaceful revolution. We want to demonstrate to like make change happen. But what they did uh, was an act of privilege and it was grotesque. And I hope every single one of them are held fully accountable. The president should have been held accountable. He clearly, he clearly organized this. He clearly had his people organizing it. And somehow he's going to escape prosecution, it seems like, um, which I think is dangerous. I think the guy should be prosecuted. So, yeah, you know, I'm, I am pretty opinionated, as you probably can tell about this stuff. I don't hold back uh, when it comes to like, you know, when it comes to racism and injustice. Um, and I do think the drug war was always racist from the start. Harry Anslinger, the architect, right. you know, he 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 was a Nazi. He was with the American Nazis. So, look, um, there's authoritarians out there and they want law and order. And I do, too. But you can't create a bad law and expect order. You got to have you got to have laws that reflect the will of the people. And these laws clearly don't anymore. I mean, the polling is in the 70s now for legalization. For the Democrats not to somehow figure out a way to legalize in the next two years in this in this current Congress and current environment, if they can't do it, I'm worried that they will be a, a rise of apathy on the Democratic left. And you might see the Republicans regain power again. And then we get and, and, and the Republicans may regain power by using cannabis as a way to convince people that they're not as hateful as they are. I mean, I, I have said this for years. I thought that it would be a Republican that would would finally overturn the cannabis laws rather than a Democrat. Um, and only because they would do so because they recognize that maybe, hmm, while people are looking the other way, they can then get in everything else they want to do to be able to to go ahead and, and go back to, you know, lording over people the way that they do. Um, let's wait before we get out of here, before I run out of time, I want to talk a little bit more about your Joints for Jabs program. Is this... This is an idea that you had to give out uh, cannabis for people who go and get their vaccine. Yes, um, I was inspired by anti-vaccine activists who were also cannabis activists, some libertarians in California. I saw they were harassing people getting uh, the vaccine. And I thought, wow, this is just this is not a good look for cannabis. We need to do something that shows that. We believe in science. The science says that all the vaccines are have efficacy and improve your chances of not dying from COVID-19. And we don't have an epidemic of people, uh, you know, of people in emergency rooms from getting these shots. Uh, so, and I've talked to many people who've gotten the shot at this point, and and I'm, I'm I have no fear whatsoever about it. And I think it's an important public health measure. If you have a legitimate medical reason for not getting the vaccine. I fully respect that. And, and but for the healthy people, this is your chance to do something for your fellow citizens. We can just put out this fire of the vaccine spreading around. And, uh, you know, I know it may not be the only solution, but I really got behind it. So I thought about, you know, we've DCMJ has given away thousands of seeds over the years. We've given in front of the White House. We've we've gotten people to show up for that. We've given away joints at like a Donald Trump's inauguration. We gave away 10,000 joints as a community. Okay. We thought, well, maybe we do it. We just give away a joint and we, you know, pot for shots, you know, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and then someone said joints for jabs. We, then we had a co contest. What was the best name and joints for jabs um, ended up winning. And so we're just giving this reward to people. We're going to give them a, like a full gram king size joint. It was rolled by a machine, not licked. <laughs> and uh, we we have volunteers, about 60 people have signed up so far to staff, to staff tables. It looks like it's going to be something like 30 different locations. We're trying to do literally every single vaccination center. 
I mean, you might why, wonder why would we do this? Why would we divide up? It's a lot of work. Why don't you just do it at one place and do it for the cameras? What we're trying to do is get people to, once they get this joint, these are all DC residents. We want them to call their council members. We're not just giving them the joint. We're saying, okay, here's this for you, but we really wish you'd call the council member and ask for these things. And we're going to ask for casual sales. We're going to ask for the right to sell home grow, farmers markets, all these micro things that we want that will help really the average person legally make money off of can cannabis, not, not big business people. And so anyway, we're using this. It's like a, it's a twofer, you know, or, or threefer really. It's we're going to get people to hopefully register for the vaccine on that day. So we see a spike in demand for the vaccine on that day. Uh, we hope you get a free cannabis, uh, which is it's always a good day when you get free cannabis. And it's a blend of home grow cannabis from D.C. residents, as, as many as like six different strains in one. I would call it kind of a salad joint. Um, definitely something you should be waiting for when you have nothing to do to smoke because it might be really strong. And um, and then last thing, you know, it, it, it is the getting social uh, activism. We want people to every person's voice counts. And when politicians hear from 30 or 40 or 100 people who call them up and say the same thing, they generally get the idea that maybe they should do that. It doesn't take that many people, um, especially in, in just one local area, like in your hometown. So you know, we're acting locally, but we have inspired a Joints for Jabs in New York City that's occurring. And since gifting of cannabis is not legal in New York City, this will be, uh, this is being done by, by street level dealers, I kid you not, um, who actually are pro-vaccine and want to really encourage their, this is in an immigrant community in Brooklyn. I've been hearing all about it. I'm like, wow, they're doing it. There's a, there's a dispensary in Michigan that's doing pot for shots. And they're giving away a dube tube in the dispensary if you bring in your vaccination. I think this is just like any other industry, like any other community, we should all be doing our part to encourage public health. And um, this vaccine is uh, is part of it. And not everybody likes getting a shot. And we could all acknowledge that, maybe laugh at that a little bit. Um, and then, you know, uh, some people have said that you shouldn't smoke the joint right after you get the shot, that it might interfere with the effectiveness of the vaccine. Uh, there's no evidence of that. There's no evidence of that at all. As a matter of fact, it probably would help because we recognize the anti-inflammatory effects of cannabis and it would probably help with, you know, the soreness in the arms. So I don't buy that at all. I, I got to tell you something, Mr. Eidinger. So it's uh, uh, such a pleasure having you on today, my friend. I'm almost out of time. Um, okay. I, I literally would want to know, geez, how do we clone you? You know what I mean? Thank you. Uh, it's really nice of you to say that. Um, but I, I, I do, I do have a question for you. Um, I mean, what's your opinion on casual sales? I mean, do you think people should be able to just not, not? I mean, do you agree with that? Because it's kind of a new topic. I, I haven't heard much, many activists even talk about casual sales. I, you know, I, I have never thought about it that way. I mean, I literally, because my mind has been so focused on, you know, trying to ensure that states continue to pass legislation to allow for distribution through either dispensaries or through, you know, cannabis sales places where it's completely legal. But I have no problem with and, and literally am, uh, would support any initiative for casual sales. I mean, you know, if uh, I, I, how many times have I literally been a participant in a casual sale? You know, yeah. I have a friend who, who literally, you know, went out last week and maybe bought a, you know, whatever the, the amount was that they had. And, um, you know, they bought something and then, you know, if they gave me a little bit of it, I, of course, want to compensate somebody for taking money out of their pocket, and giving me something out of their pocket. So, yeah, I think there should be an opportunity for if, if, if um, you know, if I had 10 people show up in my house today or come over today and, you know, somebody said, hey, you got anything I can do? I said, yeah, you know, the first one's on me. But, you know, if you want to start digging into my stash, you gonna have to compensate me. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, not everybody is is it has a, that kind of money around that they can afford to let someone just take hundred dollars worth of cannabis out of their house, you right. know. It, it, but they might be willing to let them take it if they, well, if you pay for it. Yeah, I mean, that's what it cost me. But that resale, that moment of resale, that becomes a crime. And I'm like, wait, you got you got to deal with all this little stuff too. Yeah, we can't just be thinking about big licenses and. Yeah, I mean that that right there. You just you just nailed it. I mean, who who can afford? And uh, most people, you know, go out and they they may get their stash covered for the next couple of weeks, and 
who can afford saying, oh, I'll give you half of mine. I'll, I'll just suck it up. That, that ain't happening. <laughs> I, you know, I can, you know, I remember, you know, back in the day and, you know, when I was with uh, friends and kids and uh, when I was a teenager myself, I mean, you know, it, it wasn't, it, you didn't look at it like it was an obligation. You looked at it like it was, you know, being respectful. I mean, you know, I, I'm not going to come over to your house and take two six packs of beer out of your refrigerator and just walk home. Because <laughs> I guarantee you, the next time I come over, you would tell me bring back me bring me two more six packs of, yeah. of, of beer, right? Yep. Um, yeah. No, that's that's how I feel about it. No, thank you for that question. But um, yeah, my friend, you know, we barely scratched the surface of all the things that you are involved in. I mean, your activism is just huge. You're involved in so many things from GMO, you know, to you know, uh, um, uh, uh, politics to social equity. Uh, I, I, you know, I could talk to you for hours and hours on end. So I want you to know that you always have a home here. All right. Well, invite me on again. I'll come back. Absolutely. Love to have you back. And I can't thank you enough for this conversation. I want to make sure all of you at home who have tuned in, how can they get a hold of you if they want to get more information about what you're doing uh, and what you're working on, sir? Just Adam at dcmj.org. Uh, you can also go to, to DCMJ website and uh, just you know, check us out there. You can sign up for Joints for Jabs if you're in the D.C. area. We'd love your participation. Great. Well, okay. And I hope that the, the Joints for Jabs spreads all the way across this entire country. Anything we can do to get people to recognize that it's their responsibility to be safe for their fellow man. And, I, and I, you know, I've, I've been just – I'm completely baffled by this idea. I do get the people who are the never-vaxxers. I, I get you where you were coming from. Okay, got that. But right now we're looking at something that has shut down the world. Okay. I mean, can we not admit that? I mean, the entire world has been affected um, all at the exact same time. Mm-hmm. And the whole world can be affected at the same time if we just do our individual little part to help preserve mankind. You know, um, if we fight this one, my biggest fear hasn't been as much about COVID as it is the next one. Because mm-hmm. I think what we don't recognize is all the damage we have done to this planet, all the things that we have done to destroy, you know, those things that are on this planet. You know, I believe in science. And so I believe that when Albert Einstein said for every action is an equal and opposite reaction, well, for every disease, I think that there was something put on this planet that was plant-based to cure that. I do. I really do. I, I firmly believe that. I thought it, I believe that that's what the was is happening and has, been, has happened in the rainforest that we're destroying. But now mankind is set about thinking we are smarter than and stronger than and bigger than nature. Mm-hmm. The second we cross that barrier, just because of this little thing, you know, that we use these things and the internet, the second we cross that barrier thinking that we are the gods, I think mankind has just set itself up for God coming back and saying, oh, really? Mm. Take a look at this. You know, I don't know if you know this. I'm not going to keep it much longer. But, you know, it was about, mm, this is easily six months before COVID began. I remember reading a new reading an article, and I think it was in the New York Times, but it, it might have been in the Washington Post. They were talking about a group of scientists who were who had pulled an ice core up out of a glacier, and that ice core was a million years old. And the reason why they pulled the ice core out is because in another part of the glacier, the ice had melted down to that million year old level. And in that million-year-old level, they found a virus that is a virus that we know today, but it was completely different than the form of the virus today. And it's a virus that mankind has no immunity to. So that means that if it's melted down in the other part of the ice core, ice core that means that that virus has been released into the atmosphere. Okay? Now, fortunately, we haven't gotten it yet. But we continue messing around the way we are. We're going to release something into the atmosphere that, you know, it won't be a year later that we come up with vaccines. 
we'll still be looking and scratching our heads when mankind's trying to figure out whether or not mankind exists. So, you know, I like you and and I think and I appreciate the fact that anybody who can try to force us to do what is right for our fellow man, uh, we, we need support. So please, again, I'd love to have you back. I want you guys to make sure that you tune in and see this one hour podcast that I've done now with Mr. Eidinger. And, you know, I'd love to have you back. So let me know whenever you, you have time. We'll, we'll reschedule. All right. Sounds All good. right. So make sure you guys tune into the next Let's Be Blunt with Montel. Thanks for joining me on Let's Be Blunt with Montel. Please make sure you're subscribed and hit the bell to be notified when new episodes post each week. We'd love to hear your feedback also. So please send us your comments. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.